invite you to give your attention to God's word. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end and to which of the angels has he ever said sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit eternal life. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for your word. And we pray that you would be our teacher this evening. We ask that you would grant to us the Holy Spirit. That we would have ears to hear and eyes to see the glory of Christ. So lift him high before our faces and do us good through him. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Why does it matter if Jesus is greater than the angels? Because if the angels can reconcile you to God and give you eternal life, well, then you should go to the angels for that. If your uncle could reconcile you to, give, uh, to God and give you eternal life, you should go to your uncle for that. But if it's Jesus and only Jesus who does that, then you should go to Jesus for that. And if you don't, how shall you escape? That's actually the end of the sermon as the writer gives it in chapter 2. That's his conclusion. But I wanted you to see it's driving to that end. Don't neglect Jesus. Don't slip away from him. You need him. And he offers himself to you. And he's got to be greater than the angels if he's going to really save you. And he is. He's the one you need. He's better than the angels. Now, what we want to do tonight is really look at two things. We want to look at and make a few observations about the author's method. And then we want to look at his particular message. Those two big things. And I've got three points under message. But first, method. Notice how he's doing what he's doing. And I want to start that by saying when... The passage I'm preaching is itself a Bible study. 
In other words, we have, we have a New Testament study of Old Testament Bible. Then don't be surprised when the sermon feels a bit like a Bible study. And I will say to us, the seven Old Testament quotations, and we did actually study five of them last time. We'll be looking at two, the last two tonight. But the seven Old Testament quotes might seem cumbersome to us or overwhelming to us if we don't know our Old Testament. But just know that this would have seemed elegant to the first hearers. The number seven is the number of completion and the number of perfection. And he's chosen seven quotes because they would have they would have found delight in him finding and pulling together these seven. He could have picked dozens of passages, but it, to the to the original hearers, this would have just seemed the appropriate way to speak of Jesus and to do justice to him. Now, notice also his method is in wanting to convince them of what he's saying about Jesus. He doesn't simply say it, but he appeals to the scriptures they already have that tell them about the Messiah. In other words, he's proving to them from the Bible they already know who Jesus the Messiah is. And there's a lesson in that for us before we get to the specific texts themselves. And the lesson, I think, is this. When the early church proclaimed Jesus to people, they turned to the Bible God had already given his people, the Jewish scriptures, and said, believe us. Because what we're saying is in this book, God has already given to you. You'll sometimes come across people who will say things like, well, the early Christian church... Well, they didn't really have written scripture. What they really had was oral tradition. And because they only had oral tradition, therefore the church depended upon the testimony of man instead of upon upon the written scripture of God already given. And of course, if that's the case, then it's vital for the church to have authority, final authority. And from there, the argument sometimes builds to say, well, the people of God have always been called upon to trust the church and her pastors for that final authority about what we believe. But that is a great and dangerous mistake. And the great first, partly because men are fallible, not the authors of the Bible, but pastors today, all but the apostles are fallible. The apostles were infallible as the Spirit helped them write the Bible even the New Testament. But the great first misstep is the one that advocates of this view take the wrong foot uh, in is that they say the church didn't have written scriptures. And so ultimately people's faith depended on church authority and tradition. You'll read these kinds of things and that is a mistake the author of Hebrews does not want us to make. He wants our faith rooted in something more substantive and more solid and something absolutely reliable. And that is rooted in the word of God previously given in the Old Testament. And so he says, open your Old Testament and I'll show you what I'm talking about when I say that Jesus is God. When I say that through him God made the world, that he upholds all things by the word of his spirit, that he's the heir of all things, that he's the son of God. Open your Bible, he says. Uh, This is is, uh, so that our faith will rest on God speaking in the scripture and 
so that our faith will not rest upon fail, fickle, fallen man. This is the method that Jesus himself used in, uh, when he rose from the dead and he met with his disciples walking, you remember, on the road to Emmaus. What did he do? Yes, he showed, him, showed them himself and then he led them in a Bible study showing them that it was Moses and the law and the prophets and the Psalms who said that the Christ must suffer and die and rise. That's Luke 24. This was the method of the apostles. They would go into a town and go into the synagogue and open the Bible and say, God promised a Messiah. His name is Jesus. He's come. This was the concern of one of the early church bishops, Cyril of Jerusalem, who, in, who died in 386. He pastored in the 300s, and he said this to his people, Do not then believe me, because I tell you these things. Unless you receive from the Holy Scriptures the proof of what is set forth. Uh, it's the same thing I say to you. Don't just believe because of what I tell you. To the children of the church, don't just believe because of what your parents tell you. Now, what we're telling you, Lord willing, is the truth. But we want your faith on something substantial, eternal, everlasting, a rock. And that is on God speaking in his word. And so he says, let's have a Bible study. Open your Old Testament. Let me show you these things. And so we need to be careful we don't make that kind of misstep. Because if we make the misstep that says, well, we didn't have a Bible when Jesus came. Then we might make the next misstep which says we really do need uh, the church to have the ultimate authority in matters of faith and doctrine. And when we do that, we set men up as authorities alongside the Bible and the end product of that is that they become authorities over the Bible. Because you ask the question, well, how do we know what the Bible says? And people will say, well, the men of the church will tell you. So listen to them. But no, 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 you need to listen to the Bible is what the author here is saying. It's after all, as 1 Peter 1.23 says, it's the Bible that brought you life. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. This is James chapter 1 verse 18. Of his own will God brought us forth by the word of truth. God's word gave you life. God's word gave you faith. God's word feeds your soul. It's not the church that gave us the word of God. It's the word of God that brought into being the church. That sustains the church. That feeds and nourishes the church. That corrects the church. And keeps the church. And so he says, open your Old Testament. Trust the word of God. This is what it says about the Messiah. Jesus is that Messiah. Let us likewise be people who have their faith founded on God and his word. Now that's his method, but let's get to his message. And that's the main thing. Verses 10 to 14 tonight, we're picking up. Three more things he's saying about Jesus uh, in verses 10 to 12, one, verse 13, a second, and verse 14, he closes with a rhetorical question about angels. And so we're going to see three things tonight. I want to highlight three things in verses 10 to 12. He says, unlike the angels, Jesus is the creator 
and controller of the universe. And he's going to quote a psalm about that. And then in verse 13, he says, unlike the angels, Jesus is the exalted, victorious ruler over all enemies. And he's going to quote a psalm about that. And then in verse 14, he's going to ask a question about angels, which basically gets and drives at this. Whereas Jesus came to save us, the angels are sent by him to serve us. So these are three ways in which Jesus is greater than the angels. In the first place, in verses 10 to 12, we see that Jesus is the creator and controller of the universe. Notice, back in your Bible, that he quotes Psalm 102, 25 to 27, where it says, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Now this is his sixth Old Testament quotation, and here he is seeing in the language of the Bible speaking of God, the Lord, the Creator, he is seeing Christ there, the eternal Son of God there at the beginning as the Creator. And he's saying he made everything. And the angels are part of what he made. Of course he's greater than the angels. They're just creatures too. That he had already asserted in verse 2. At the end of verse 2, you remember he said the Son is the one through whom God made the universe. And he upholds it by the word of his power. Now he says Psalm 102 says that about the Christ. And not only does he create the universe, but he brings creation to completion. Verses 11 and 12. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. So he creates, he controls, he rolls it up. He brings an end to it all in its appropriate time. And I want to pause there and apply this. What a comfort then this is to believers. In fact, Psalm 102 was written as a word of comfort to believers. The opening line of it is this, a prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. And the whole first half of Psalm 102 is is this lament about uh, the decaying nature of life about weakness and an ultimate failure of all created things, especially human nature. I mean, if you go back to Psalm 102 at verse 3, it says, For my days pass away like smoke, my bones like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered because of my loud groaning. My bones cling to my flesh. I lie awake. I am like a lonely sparrow. On the housetop, all the day my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse, for I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink. You hear the language of lament, sorrow, grief, and human weakness and frailty. And in particular, he sees mortality as a result of the alienation we have from God on account of our sin. Because he goes on to say in verse 10, Psalm 102, 
because of your indignation and anger, for you have taken me up and you've thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. This is the psalmist's experience of life in this world. I don't think I've ever quoted J. Vernon McGee before, but you've heard J. Vernon McGee on the radio through the Bible. Amazing preaching voice. Has some wonderful, uh, wonderful sermons. Don't commend everything he teaches, but said some great things. He said this, This is God's universe, and he does things his way. You may have a better way. But you don't have a universe. So what do you do when you're afflicted? Pour out your complaint to the Lord is what the psalmist is saying. He can take it. But more than that, the psalmist is saying, in the second half of the psalm, the psalmist is saying, lift up your eyes to the Lord who is what? Who is unchanging and everlasting. He's altogether different than this creation which is running down. He says, they will perish, but you remain. So trust in him. Put your hope in him. If you know the hymn writer, Henry Light. Henry Light gave us the song, Abide With Me. He died of tuberculosis at the age of 54. Three weeks before he died, he hoped to leave to believers some word of encouragement. And he actually penned the hymn. And one of the lines of it goes like this. And we've been singing as Christian people his hymn since 1847. Swift to its close ebbs out life's little day. Earth's joys grow dim. Its glories pass away. Change and decay in all around I see. O thou who changes not, abide with me. Do you hear his prayer? That's the prayer of Psalmist, the Psalm 102. You're the same. Your years will have no end. Oh, be my help. Be my hope. Be my rock. I need you. Because you made the world and you control the world. In the world of baseball, a perfect game thrown by a pitcher means the opposing team never touches the base. No hits, no walks, one, two, three up, one, two, three down, every inning, the whole game. In the 140 years of Major League Baseball, with over 210,000 games played, there have been 23 perfect games. About one one hundredth of one percent. Two weeks ago on September 10th, Rich Hill of the Los Angeles Dodgers was seven innings into a perfect game when his coach pulled him out. Why? What could possibly interrupt such an historic achievement? Well, Hill had previously this summer spent a month on the disabled list for a blister on his throwing hand finger. And now, after 89 pitches in this game, he had a little hot spot on a finger. Concerned that the blister might reappear and they might lose him for the run to the end of the season, the coach pulled him, not wanting to risk him. 
baseball players can be quite fragile. He couldn't finish what he started. But Jesus isn't like that at all. Creation wears out, but he never does. Therefore, he can be your rock in shifting sand. He can be your comfort when all other comforts fail. He is unchanging and everlasting. And the larger point of the author here is that God never said any of that about the angels. Jesus made us. He didn't. Jesus runs the world. They don't. The first hearers needed to have this high view of Jesus. Now, it could be the case for you and I that we don't think too highly of angels. We may not think about them much at all. But there's still a point of contact here for us. Like them, the original hearers, we face increasing pressure to diminish Jesus. To think less of him than he is. To embrace something more palatable, something more socially acceptable Something that is less than the Jesus who is. Uh, You sometimes see this in public when, uh, say for for instance, some some, uh, famous person becomes a professing Christian and then suddenly they're invited to all the talk shows to talk about their new faith and life and the big changes that have happened. But invariably, somebody brings up to them some of Jesus' rather more radical teachings about hell or about judgment or about him being the only way to God and you see that dear brother and sister begin to backpedal away from who Jesus really is they cave under the pressure of the moment and modify their view of Jesus right then and there now I don't believe that's an unforgivable sin And I'm glad for that because I'm quite sure I've done that myself in the history of my Christian experience and conversations with people. I just wanted to step back and sort of round out the edges of Jesus to make him seem just a little more acceptable to everybody who was listening to me. It's a temptation we can all feel in personal conversations with others. You know, when you're the only, or when you're the token Christian in the group and they start probing you about what does the Bible really teach. And every time we do that, we are doing in principle what these original hearers were tempted to do. To trade the real Jesus, the one in scripture, for a lesser diminished Jesus who is in the end only a Jesus of our own imagination. Now, if you're like me and you've buckled under the pressure at times, then you surely need to know that this one who is so high and lifted up, who is the creator and the controller of all things, the unchangeable and eternal and everlasting one, this one humbled himself and died on a cross to bear away our sin that we might have mercy and forgiveness before his face. And that's the first thing that he highlights about Jesus and that he's unlike the angels. The second one is the seventh quote found at verse 13. And here he shows us that unlike the angels, Jesus is the victorious ruler over his enemies. 
verse 13. And to which of the angels has he, that is God, ever said, quote, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That last quote there is from Psalm 110, verse 1. It's the most frequently quoted psalm in the New Testament. Once again, it's a messianic psalm. Jesus engaged in discussion about this psalm. It speaks of the Messiah. And it says the Messiah, who we know is Jesus, that he is uh, exalted by God to the place of power and authority in the kingdom at the right hand of the majesty on high. That was the language of the end of verse 3. Having made purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now he says, let me show you to that. That's Psalm 110 verse 1. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty until I make your enemies a footstool. And that promise there is that he will place his feet upon the neck of his enemies in the position of the victorious, conquering king. No one and nothing can defeat him. Not Satan, not evil, not death itself, not human sin. And so, by way of application for us, stepping back for a moment, I just want to say that, of course, you are always, therefore, safe if you are no longer his enemy, but you have been made his friend. Because he restrains and conquers all his and our enemies on our behalf for our well-being. There was a man named Joseph Samogi, who was a devout Lutheran and professor, when the Nazis took over and began to influence life in Hungary, he laid his open Hebrew Bible on his desk at the university. Other professors would come up to him and say, Joseph, is, is that not Jewish? Yes, he would reply, it is the most Jewish of all things Jewish. And they would challenge his temerity and urge him to be more careful. And he would respond, I'm a Christian, aren't you? And so one evening, a policeman appeared at his door. He informed Joseph that he would be back later with two Gestapo agents. And his advice was, quote, I would appreciate it if you would disappear. And so for a time, Joseph went to live in hiding among the peasants of rural Hungary. And then the Nazism passed, and he returned to his university post. But then the Russians came. The Soviet Union moved against Hungary, and his name soon appeared on a list of those to be arrested and shipped to Serbia. Well there was going to be a conference of Semitic scholars in Vienna, outside the country. He applied for a visa to be permitted to leave and to go to the conference. He was denied. He applied three times. He was denied. And so he finally decided he would go to the office where these were being denied. It was on the fourth floor of an office building. And he says, I was so angry that I did not take the elevator. I took the stairs to cool off. And at the second landing, he says, I bumped into a former student of mine. After a warm embrace, the student said, Doctor, what are you doing here? Can I help you? And then Joseph 
learned from this former student that his fiance was the personal secretary of the official he had come to see. So the student took Joseph up into the office of the first fourth floor, introduced him to his fiance, and instructed her to grant him a visa so that he could leave the country and go to this conference. And she paled, and she replied, you know I can. His name is on the prescribed list. And at that, Joseph's former student said to her with some emotion, give the doctor a visa or cancel our wedding plans. And she got up out of her chair and she walked over to the window and she stood there at the window for some time and then she came back to her desk and she wrote him a visa. And so it is that he escaped with his life. And when he tells that story, he asks the audience, do you think it was an accident that I took the stairs that day instead of the elevator? No. It was no accident because Jesus is on his throne ruling and reigning for his people. And for the folks that this writer was writing to, some of whom who were going to face persecution, suffering, torture, and death, the writer of Hebrews, by quoting this, is reminding them, just remember who's in control over all the enemies of God. Now that will not mean that you will always escape suffering. But it does mean that you never are shaken out of the hand of the Christ who holds on to you through your suffering. And it does mean that there is a day, there is a day coming when all his enemies will bow the knee to him and even death will be no more. And that's the second thing he points out. No angel was ever promised that. And thirdly, verse 14, he asks a rhetorical question. He assumes they know the answer, in which he basically says, let me remind you, Jesus is the Savior, but the angels simply serve him as they serve his people. Are not, verse 14, all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? They minister, Christ rules. They are sent, but he is sovereign. And he sends them to be a benefit to all his people. You who believe in him, and you who will yet believe in him. There's a famous missionary, John Patton, who went to uh, the uh, islands, the New Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific He went to a people who were not friendly to foreigners, nor friendly to the gospel, and they were cannibalistic, and so his life was always in danger. He tells the story of one night the hostile natives surrounded his mission headquarters, intent on burning out the Patton family and killing them. John Patton and his wife prayed all night during the terror-filled night that God would deliver them, And when daylight came, they were amazed to find that all the natives had gone. And so they thanked God for delivering them. And about a year later, the tribal chief himself 
was converted to faith in Christ. And in a conversation, he asked him about that time a year ago when they had surrounded the house, determined to kill him. And the chief responded in surprise. Well, we didn't do it because who were all those men who were with you there? And the missionary replied, there were no men there, just my wife and I. And the chief argued that they had seen many men standing guard, hundreds of big men in shining garments with drawn swords in their hands. They seemed to circle the mission house so that the natives were afraid to attack. Patton, as you can imagine, concluded that he had been rescued by the intervention of angels. The native chief came as well to agree with him in that. Now, I don't know what all happened there, but we have a marvelous example in 2 Kings chapter 6 of just this sort of thing. You know that in 2 Kings chapter 6, this is a story where the prophet Elisha has gone to Dothan and he's been discovered. The king of Syria despises him because every time the king of Syria whispers something in his internal council of men, Elisha is ahead of him. Elisha knows it. He's been given inside information by the Lord. And so he wants to capture Elisha. And so he sends his men to the city to surround it. In 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 15, it says, The servant of the man of God, the man of God is Elisha, his servant rose early in the morning and went out, and behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. So there's this great army moving in, and the servant says, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Verse 16, he said, Do not be afraid. For those... Who are with us are more than those who are with them. We have more on our side than they have in their army. You can imagine the response of the servant. We do. (laughs) We do. And so at verse 17, Elijah prays and says, Oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And what did he see? And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. That's the army of the Lord, the invisible angelic host who are there to assist and to protect the people of God. Psalm 34 says the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Jesus said in Matthew 18 verse 10, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Those words, I think, indicate that there is some protective and overseeing function on the part of angels for the people of God. For have they not been sent? to serve those who will inherit eternal life. And if they ministered to the heirs of salvation when this was written, why not now? And if they minister to the heirs of salvation, why not you? And though you probably won't even know it when they do, 
Yet when they do, they are serving Jesus who sent them. The Jesus who is unchanging and everlasting as the creator and controller and victorious ruler over all evil for your good, dear believer in him. May that be sweet to your soul. Let's pray. Father, we bless you and thank you that in a world of evil where we have been ungodly ourselves, you did not turn your back upon us. You gave Christ for us and he holds us and he keeps us and we are his forever. We thank you. We praise you. Be exalted among us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.